Hello everyone, this is Aidan Lang speaking to you now about Leos Janacek's Katya Kavanova. I've often said that Janacek is a wonderful composer for first-time opera goers, and people look at me as if I'm slightly mad on that. The traditional way of thinking is you take a newcomer to Bohème or to Butterfly. Now, those two are great masterpieces and are performed all around the world frequently, but for people who are opera-wary or haven't experienced an opera, they are likely to come to the theatre more informed by the way they digest entertainment through film, through television. The great advantage of the works of Janacek is that they have the sort of directness and the emotional punch that you see today on long narrative TV and in cinema. A first-timer will find a far more immediate bond with a work like Katya than they would with a more romantically weighted work like La Boheme. It's the immediacy of Janacek's writing that I think is its great strength. He gives no time for sentiment he allows the speech of a character to really push and propel the narrative of the story. This is not opera where you sit back and relax. You really feel you are present at a play which happens to be sung, a play of great intensity, rather than an opera. It's opera which keeps you on the edge of your seat the entire time. You want to know what on earth is going to happen next and, and how the characters are going to get out of the dilemmas they find themselves in. One feature of most, if not all, of Janáček's operas is the way that the characters are in quite harsh living conditions or living environments. He's unapologetic about the harshness of living. And at the end, I find that the characters emerge from their trials and tribulations with an extraordinary dignity, accepting responsibility for their actions. Katya, in the great confession scene, she admits to having committed adultery because she knows in her mind this is a sin. She owns up to her actions. She doesn't go off like the foster child Vavra and Kuria. She doesn't get out of the society and run off to Moscow. She accepts that she has behaved wrongly and pays a price. One phrase which, of course, always gets used in, in describing especially dramatic presentations is the willing suspension of disbelief. People hold of opera, you've got to do a lot of suspending, if only by the fact that the action is sung rather than spoken. I think what strikes one about seeing the operas of Janacek is how little you need to suspend that disbelief. He puts on stage life in all its gritty reality, and what's fascinating is that he is pretty well a direct contemporary of Puccini. And yet these operas are worlds apart in what they really depict. The word verismo is used for the Italian school of writing at this time. And yet Janacek's operas are far, far more realistic than the constructs of Puccini's works. You really do feel you are eavesdropping in a piece of real life. The, the sung text moves pretty well at spoken speed. You know, there's no moments where lines get repeated. In, there's no resort whatsoever to operatic forms, even though some of the characters may have a monologue. 
we just feel we're present in that character's mind at that moment. They're not long operas. There's no act which lasts more than about 40 minutes. Janacek knew what he was doing. He would take source material and really pare it down to its bare bones in order to get to the real heart of a story. Anything which is peripheral, he cuts. It's the speed, the directness, which I think is the great appeal of these operas. How should you, the audience, prepare for an opera which you may not know, or indeed a composer whose music you may not know? I think the best prep really would be to listen to Smyanacek so that the musical idiom is not alien. His music is almost impossible to describe with reference to another composer. But as soon as you know Janacek, you you can hear five bars and you know it's Janacek, even if you don't know the piece. He is so individual in his composing style, his use of speech rhythms, the lack of form, and yet it doesn't feel sprawling. You feel there's a tight uh, cogency to a structure, even though he doesn't write in clear musical numbers, if you like. It's a flowing narrative but one which feels it has a clear beginning, middle, and end. Listen to some of this and and let its immense power come to you. You could certainly listen to the Sinfonietta or the Glagolitic Mass. Those would give you the sense of what he is about musically. Some of the orchestral music, or Taras Bulba, would give you the sense of the rawness, the visceral excitement of his music. One of the great pleasures to bring Katya to the stage is, of course, the fact that it has not yet been seen by Seattle audiences. The list of repertoire which the company has done over its 50-plus years is unbelievably extensive, so it becomes harder and harder to find great works which haven't been performed at some point, but Katya is one of them. And I think one of the things I've been really pleased about in the relatively short time I've been here is that, you know, in the past three years alone, we've presented Semele, Nabucco, Maria Stuada, Cantori, and now Katia, all works which had not been seen before. And it's really pleased me the way our audiences have been fascinated to see things they haven't seen, to think about them, and to realize there's a whole wealth of repertoire outside the standard works, which is worth exploring. Our aim, as always, is to, is to f- is strike, strike a balance between what is known and things which are known exceedingly well to give them a deep dive and try and have, find productions which reveal something further than what people had maybe ever seen before. But in the case of a new work, we want to make sure that people can approach it and get to its essence as deftly as possible. So that leads to the question, what is the essence of Katia Kabanova? In a way, it's not dissimilar at its heart to the real core of La Traviata. Both operas have a strong female character and are a look at a perceived sin. I see resonances between Violetta and Katia, both individuals who are in their way constrained and repressed by moral and social codes, who both break out from that as well. Katya lives in a small town. We're not in a city. We're in a bit of a backwater. Social codes become the important arbiter of people's behavior and indeed their existence. We're in a society where a young married woman finds that as soon as she has entered marriage, 
all her freedom, her ability to think and feel as an individual have been almost shut off by the contract of marriage. She's an individual who's dying to break out, but can find no way to do so. She encounters a young man who's come to this small town purely in order to fulfill requirements for him to gain his inheritance. He, he doesn't want to be there. He's come from Moscow. A strange bond is formed between these two characters who, in their different ways, both would rather be somewhere else. An inevitable affair takes place. Katya is forced to confront the full weight of her actions. She takes responsibility for that, and as Boris Velava rather cravenly is forced to go off and leave the town, she finds no other possibility than to take her own life, which of course is a mortal sin within the moral framework which Katya has. So she makes a terrible decision. This isn't a sort of, they will say, romanticized suicide or, or a suicide for a frisson like Tosca jumping off the Castel Sant'Angelo. This is a terrifying decision to take her own life by Katya because within her own moral framework, it leads to hell and damnation. It's an appalling decision she makes, but she finds there is no other solution. The action of Act One revolves around Katya's husband, Tikhon, who needs to go away on business. That is the close of Act One as we see him depart. Dramaturgically, what that action does is lay open the possibility for Katya to explore her feelings with Boris. The act of leaving opens the gate for the next significant act, which is the meeting which comes at the end of Act 2. The first act has a consequence, and we see the consequence in the action of Act 2, which otherwise would not have happened. And then, of course, the same thing happens from Act 2 to Act 3. We see the love duet that will lead to a full-blown affair. The action of Act 3 is the consequence of that action at the end of Act 2. So we have a very clear structure of events leading to a climax and then the following act being only possible because of the events of a previous act. It's a very clear three-act structure. And yet that structure underpins a narrative which seems free-flowing. It's a very clever use on Janczyk's part of an underlying rigid structure, which is artless. Had I not pointed that out, probably people at first view wouldn't necessarily spot that, but it's there. This is very much a well-made play, and the nature of Janczyk's music gives one a sense that this action is very free-flowing, and yet it has a discipline to it in terms of the way it's put together. Love is an important aspect of this opera. Katya is the only one of Janacek's operas where we really have love music. In the duet between Boris and Katya, we have a love duet. Yes, there's a duet between the fox and the vixen in The Cunning Little Vixen, but that's really a mating duet rather than a love duet per se. It, it's as if we see human relationships in three different aspects. Actually, in three couples, we see Katya and Boris. They are contrasted to a much freer moral attitude of the foster child who lives in the house, Vavra, and her lover, Kudryash, the true freedom of a couple unfettered by wedlock. 
contrast it to the difficulty for a married woman who is in a loveless marriage to have any emotional freedom other than through an illicit affair. And then a perverse couple, which is the terrifying mother-in-law, Kabanicha, and the uncle of Boris, Decoy. It's a truly perverse little scene, and it seems to me uh, it exists just before we see the love duet and the meeting of Vavra and Kudryash. It's there to show a flip side to true love. I, I'm sure that's what its purpose is, to show two characters who don't seem to be married but are pillars of a society. Somehow they cannot find anything pure and natural, and their relationship is governed by strange codes and rather warped mentality and I'm sure it is there actually to contrast with the purity of the quartet that we see in the next scene. Janacek's operas really came to prominence in Europe in the 1950s. Um, they were performed in Germany but outside his native Czechoslovakia and Germany they were little known until some pioneering work done by the great conductor Sir Charles McCarris. So gradually through the 60s and then the 70s more and more landmark productions took place and I think his full genius became recognized. It probably has taken longer to cross the Atlantic. There are many productions certainly at the Met and, and San Francisco in the past couple of years have done Yenufa and the Macropolis case. Nonetheless the productions are fairly few and far between. And this seems to me a huge shame because Janacek is one of the most important composers of opera of the 20th century. They're not easy. Simply to disentangle what's on the score takes a lot of preparation. They are challenging to sing. They are difficult orchestrally. The best orchestras in the world will struggle with these scores at early readings because the way Janacek wrote them down was so chaotic. They're difficult to read. They do represent a challenge for any opera company. It's easier for opera companies with a larger repertoire per year to program them because we don't expect the same audience attendance at a Janacek as we would for a Puccini. The more operas you perform, the more you can buffer yourself against a smaller attendance for a piece. It may also be that they are deeply Slavic, and we're used to opera being Italianate or German or French. Other than Eugene Onegin and perhaps Queen of Spades, you know, we don't have so many Slavic operas being performed regularly here in the States. How do we bridge that, and how do we make a, a production of Katya immediately appealing to an audience uh, here in Seattle. Well, the path taken by the creative team is to relocate the action to a 1950s America. Why, I hear you ask? Well, let's consider what was going on in that immediate post-war period. We come to that age where the beautiful family becomes an important part of small-town America. And with that, the idea of the stay-at-home wife, you know, women who had found employment during wartime years suddenly find themselves almost by default expected to be the mother bring up the family with no real possibility to find fulfillment on their own. A character in a film who occurs to me as a dead parallel for this is 
In that marvellous film, The Hours, it's a sort of three-pronged look at Virginia Woolf and Mrs. Dalloway seen through three different concurrent narratives. And one of those characters is a wife in the 1950s. It's a character played by Julianne Moore, who feels completely constrained by the marriage she's in and is reading Virginia Woolf and finds herself in her imagination breaking out from that. And I find a direct parallel with that character to what the creative team are suggesting with this production, that there are really clear links between the social constraints in small-town America in the 50s and the social constraints in Russia in the 1860s. If we put 1860s Russia on stage, would we understand those characters as well as we understand people living in 50s US? The answer is probably no. Our job as an opera company, especially in dealing with a piece which is new to people, is to enable them to get to the heart of that piece as deftly as possible. So I was really pleased when the team came up with this as a concept because it immediately spoke to me as a way that we can deliver this piece and make people understand without having to go to history books or other references exactly who these people are, what are the constraints they're under, what sort of world must Katya be living and why she feels she needs to break out. The creative team are newcomers to Seattle Opera. We felt that if we were singing the opera in Czech, it was important to have a conductor who is completely conversant in both the language and the, as well as the musical idiom. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Oliver von Dachnanny to make his debut here, someone who is a native Czech speaker, Slovak actually. It's really helpful. So much of the rhythmic pulse of this opera is actually dictated by the natural speak rhythms of the Czech language. If you open a score, you often see you know, five quarter notes bracketed together with a five over them. Now, Janacek didn't intend a mathematical five against four. Simply what's happening is that the word has five syllables and he wants it on one beat. So he just wants you to say the single word. It's essential in singing in Czech. We get the Czech idiom and pronunciation and rhythm right because that is completely baked in to Janacek's music. We have a creative team who have actually come from Australia. The director, Patrick Nolan, had actually worked on this piece before. Patrick's work, I think, is defined by a really realistic form of acting. He's not one to abstract things. His work really is about very detailed observation of character, but obviously within a wider picture as well. And his scenic partner is Genevieve Blanchett, again a designer I've worked with before, who has brought a real beauty to this production. I don't want to give too much away, but we're very much aware of nature and of the landscape, which is crucial to uh, an understanding both of the events of the opera and also, I think, to Katya's character. There's a side to her which feels at one with nature. And so that element of landscape has played a very important part of these very, very beautiful and striking designs. The other component is... Video. Our lighting designer, Mark Howard, is also responsible for the video work. We're in a huge projected panorama, which are in fact long take video clips rather than still projected images. So if you're aware of clouds 
moving or birds flying past, that's because they really did well. They were taking these 25-minute takes. Uh, one of the dangers of still projection is it becomes lifeless. It's one of the problems of putting nature on stage, putting trees on stage, is they don't move around in the wind. And so this is a way of rather deftly getting around that. We're seeing real nature projected. So we get a, a sense of immense landscape on three large projection screens wrapping around the acting space. That will very deftly give a sense of the realistic environment in which this action takes place. The filming took place out in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, actually not far from my home in North Bend. <laughs> Locals may well recognise Mount Sai and, and the mountainscape around it and other areas. We wanted to feel that it was in this part of the world, not in Arizona. The sort of magnificence of the mountainscape and the skies is the underlying feeling to this piece. There are only two characters in this uh, production who have the double cast. They are Katya herself and Boris. And it's my great pleasure to introduce to our audiences uh, the work of Melody Moore as Katya. Melody has been seen in many wonderful roles around the country, but never out here. So I think her debut was long overdue. Our other Katya is Corinne Winters, who we just saw as Violetta just last week. And one of the reasons we decided to split the role of Katya between Melody and Corinne was to suggest that, whereas previously there was implicitly a hierarchical structure by dint of the fact that one singer would have five performances and one would have two, by leveling it up, we're giving those people who didn't have a chance to see Corianna's Violetta the opportunity to see her, and really to say that we make no difference between the casts that we feature on any particular performance. It's quite entertaining to see confused looks in the staff uh, in the rehearsal room because, of course, um, we just saw Joshua Dennis give his Alfredo, and we now have his identical twin brother Joseph playing the part of Boris. Joseph, just like Josh, is a marvellous singing actor. Uh, we really, I've noticed also impeccable check. And it's great to give him his debut so soon after that of his brother. And we have another debutante in Scott Quinn, who is sharing the role of Boris with Joe. I guess the next important character is Victoria Livengood, who has been a long time uh, since she was at Seattle Opera. She's singing the role of a fearsome Kabanicha, one of the truly extraordinary roles of the entire opera. This is a character who is deeply unpleasant. What on earth is going on in her mind, I do not know. But she is so governed by her own sense of what is proper in society that she allows no place for feeling and thought. And she's a truly strange creation, but a terrifying creation and a terrifying presence on stage. And it was very important for us to have a singer who could convey that character. Victoria is an astonishing singing actress, and I know she's really relishing the task ahead of her. We have another debutant for Seattle Opera in Stefan Skafarovsky playing the role of the bullying merchant decoy. Stefan is of Ukrainian extract, although very much an American. And I remember when he auditioned for us a couple of years ago, we virtually stopped him at the door saying, this role is yours. We were struck instantly how perfect he would be, both vocally but also as a character actor, to convey this extraordinary role. So it's great to have Stefan with us. 
We have in the younger couple of lovers, we have Joshua Cole, who we saw in Ariadne of Naxos, coming back to sing Kudryash. And we welcome back Maya Layani, who of course was Flora in, in Traviata, to play Vavra, the next couple of lovers. Vavra is an interesting role because although it's a mezzo-soprano role, it's written very high. Maya was telling me how it's uh, taken a while to just get her voice up there, but now she's really sung the role in and is singing magnificently. We're also thrilled to give a Seattle Opera debut to Nikki Spence, an English singer singing the role of Katia's husband, Tikon. He's a weak man, really. He's not unlikable, but there is clearly has been no real meeting of spirits between him and his wife Katya. Nick is a remarkable singing actor. He's done some Janacek before. He was recently in Yenufa at English National Opera. It's fantastic that we can give him a debut so far from home. I know you'll really be taken by his performances. So this opera is something very new for probably for most of our audiences. And what I can say is that you're in for a treat. It's different. It's not Italian opera. It's very much its own thing. Janacek's works have been discovered in the past 60, 70 years. And people who are passionate about them become passionate about them for life. That's due to the incredible intensity, the immediacy, the way we empathize with the pain of the characters all adds up to a truly compelling night of opera. You will come out of the performance, hit in the solar plexus, and you will have had a really great experience of opera.